Well, hi. Good to have people here. Chris, I forgot to ask you about the plan for the final song. Uh, will will that be a will that be a congregation? Will you be coming back up here at the end? Okay, you're in charge of that then. Good, in good hands. <clears throat> Well, here we are expecting great things to happen and waiting longer for them than we've expected. And in Psalm 89, a guy named Ethan the Ezraite is finding himself in the same place where he ends up asking, How long, O Lord? He starts off in the beginning of the psalm. Uh, essentially singing of the steadfast love of the Lord, saying you, you are faithful to fulfill the promises that you've made to us. He, he says, I said in verse 2, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You've said, you, you will do what you've said you will do, and I trust you for it. You will show us the undeserved kindness that you've promised. And there's one promise in particular that he's counting on. We want a king. We want a good king. We want the king that you've promised. And you have promised it. You have said, verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And then Ethan goes on to describe for a good chunk of the psalm, just God's ability, his, his power, his ability to make good on his promises. O Lord, God of hosts, verse 8, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. And then with that in mind, he comes back to the promise itself and he expands on God's promise to David to set his son on his throne. Verse 20, I have found David my servant. This is God speaking now. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. And then in verse 28, my steadfast love, I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. That promise in the end stands firm. And there is the very real possibility of interruptions to the final fulfillment of that promise. This is in verses 30 through 34. Sometimes it's just not as simple as we would hope. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him, from David, my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. And they have been false to his covenant. They have disobeyed his commandments. And so here in the, in the place where Ethan the Ezraite stands, he finds those promises of God interrupted just like God said they would be if David's sons disobeyed. They did, and David's throne is sitting in storage somewhere, and nobody's sitting on it. 
And so he, the psalmist finds himself in a place where he's asking the question of verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? How long, O Lord? And one way to answer the question, in view of God's ultimate faithfulness to his promises, one way to answer the question, how long, is until you're ready for the king I'm actually sending. You need to be prepared for him. And being ready for the king that I'm actually sending is going to take a certain amount of time. It's going to take a certain amount of communication. And it's going to take a certain kind of experience. You have to be prepared for the king I'm actually sending because it's probably not the kind of king that you're expecting. He's not coming in the way that you're expecting. I think what we're going to find in our passage this morning in Luke, in Luke 1, 26 through 38, is that God often does the greatest work in the least expected ways. Something we need to know today. God often does the greatest work in the least expected ways. And what we need to know when God works in the least expected ways is exactly the thing that Mary hears from the angel, and that is that nothing will be impossible with God. God will send salvation to his people. He will send that salvation through a king who will rescue them, who will rule them, and God will send that king at his own time and in his own way. So as we continue to follow Luke's very careful account this morning, we're going to hear that salvation described. And we're also going to see an example of what it means to receive it on God's terms. There's sort of a three-part structure to the, the interaction that the angel Gabriel has with Mary, where the angel says something and Mary responds. The angel says something and Mary responds three times. And what we're going to find in each of those three sections is that this salvation of God comes to the unexpected. It comes in a way that's impossible. And it's God's idea. It's not something that we would make up. We, we find each one of those things in each of these three sections. So I just want to read the passage before we go any further. This is Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. When God does his greatest work, often it comes to the unexpected. And that's what we see first in verses 26 through 28. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's for good reason. We're going to see a number of very intentional parallels, similarities or contrasts between this conversation that the angel has with Mary and the conversation that the angel has had with Zechariah. As as Luke, in the way he recounts this, and as God in his working, moves from the great, that's John, to the greatest, who is Jesus, he's also going to move from the unlikely to the least likely. What happens to Zechariah causes him to ask a question, well, how, how will I know this? And uh, Mary has a much better reason to ask the question, how will this be? Lots of parallels. And as we move from the great to the greatest, we'll move from the unlikely to the least likely. Gabriel was sent to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Why does Luke even phrase it that way? A city of Galilee named Nazareth. He wouldn't do that if he was talking about Jerusalem. He would just say he was sent to Jerusalem. He wouldn't do that if it were Rome. I wouldn't say... I'm going, I'm, I'm going to a city in Illinois called Chicago. Because you know where Chicago is. But if you ask me where I went to high school, I'd have to say, well, I went to high school in a town in central California, north of Fresno, called Madera. Because you've never heard of it. That's why Nazareth has to be described in terms of where it is. It's unknown. And in that little unknown city, a message comes to a girl that nobody knows and that nobody has any reason to know. He comes to a girl named Mary. There, there is one thing that's, that, that's at least a hint about Mary that, that we might look at and say this holds some promise here, and that is that Mary is betrothed to a man named Joseph who is of the house of David. Now, there's promise there. God's people know that. And even so, as God's people look forward to this son of David showing up, there's maybe nobody ex- with the possible exception of Joseph's mom saying, well, Joseph is of the house of David and he's about to get married. So maybe, maybe the Messiah will come from his family. Joseph is from Nazareth. People knew what was meant when somebody said, like is said in John 1 Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the setting in which Mary receives a visit from the angel. And it gives us some insight into why she responds in the way that she does. He came to her, this is verse 28, and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. She doesn't recognize that greeting. She, she doesn't hear it and have it 
be something that's really familiar to her, like she's really used to being called a favored one. She doesn't say, oh, hi, uh, who are you? In fact, her, her response to this angel is even different from the typical responses to an angel. When somebody uh, has an angel show up and, and bring a message to them, how do they normally respond? Well, they're, they're afraid. They're afraid in the presence of the angel. Mary's response is just a little bit different, but significantly different. Different from Zechariah's. It doesn't say that she was troubled at the angel's appearance. Whether she was or not, we don't know. She was troubled at something different. She was troubled about his greeting. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. This greeting that says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. This is as if to say, I, I don't really know what you're talking about. Do you, do you know who I am? Because nobody else does. <clears throat> this kind of greeting for Mary, no doubt, brings up all kinds of questions. How, how is she favored? How is the Lord with her? And why is this favor of God that's being announced, being announced to her by an angel? And what's this going to mean for her? This is totally unexpected. There's no sense of entitlement here. There's really just a sense of honest bewilderment. Because her life circumstances have never told her to expect this. And I wonder if yours have. Particularly, maybe you're young and you might have sort of subtle dreams of being um, recognized as really awesome when you're older. Doing something that gets people really to, to notice you. Uh, being famous. Um, being an influencer on whatever platform is popular at the time. Having lots of followers. Or have you found yourself to... To, to be in a place that's, that's a little bit frustrating for you because you don't have followers, because you're obscure, because you're alone. People, people don't flock to you. Maybe you feel insignificant. And it may well be that that is a protection for you. It may well be that God is, is helping you to, to, to stay in the place that he has assigned to you. A place in which he does great things and does them through unexpected people. It may be a protection for you. It may be a preparation for you. It may be that God intends to do something through you that people actually will notice you for. And you need a time of um, unfamousness, a time of not being noticed, and maybe even being frustrated by it to be prepared to do something that people actually will notice you for. It's dangerous. You need to be ready if God calls you to that. God has arranged Mary's life in such a way as to set her up to respond in the way that she does. Her obscurity, her unknownness is an expression of, of God's grace to her. It helps to set the stage for her receiving the gift of God as a gift, which is really the only way to receive his gifts. Those who know that they're not qualified for God's favor, including God's favor of working through them, those who know that they're not qualified for it are in the best place to 
to receive it, including the favor of being used by God to do great things. We see God coming first to the unexpected, and then we see God, through the angel, announcing the impossible in verses 30 through 34. We'll see, as we look at this, that the angel's announcement has a a structure that's very similar to his announcement to Zechariah. Remember, if, if, you, if you heard it, that, Zechari- that the angel's announcement to Zechariah first says, your wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son. Here's what's going to happen to you. And that's very similar to what he says to Mary. Verse 31, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. The angel had gone on to tell Zechariah, you will rejoice and many others will rejoice with you because this is what your son is going to do for the nation. And the same structure happens here. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Luke is, is setting these two stories side by side. He's going to keep doing this in, in future passages to help us to see the relationship and the difference between John and Jesus. The very important relationship and a very important difference. John the Baptist will be great before the Lord. We saw that last week. Jesus will simply be great. John will be great before the Lord as a prophet. Jesus will be great as the son of the most high and as the everlasting king. The fulfillment of the how long, O Lord, in Psalm 89, that God's people had been singing for hundreds of years since it had been written and still had not seen fulfilled. When when do we get our king? When do we get our king that lasts forever? That's good enough to last forever. And they're they're totally dependent on the Lord's answer. They can't make this happen for themselves. They're totally dependent on the Lord to meet their need for this ruler and this rescuer. And they're totally dependent on the Lord to define that need for them. They've got a history of picking kings that doesn't end them in a good place. They need God to do that for them, especially when we see what this king will actually do. Look back at verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, in one sense, we we want that, right? We want want lasting good. We want a rescuer and a ruler who, who, who will not end his rule by dying Again, and yet if we take anybody who's been in any position of rulership throughout human history and we say, let's put that person in power permanently, then what do we have to anticipate? Well, terror, (laughs) because they're going to mess things up really, really badly, no matter how faithful they've been. That's what always ends up happening. We need the promised king to rule over us, the kind of king that we cannot produce for ourselves, the kind that has been promised in Isaiah 9-7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What kind of king can sit on the throne forever and not have absolute power corrupt absolutely? The kind of king that's described in Isaiah 11 uh, verses 2 through 5. Look at the characteristics and how we long for these things in other leaders and never find them well enough. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He will have the kind of heart, the kind of attitude, the kind of mind that will allow him to rule perfectly with perfect justice, with perfect mercy, with perfect wisdom, the kinds of things that we long for from all the leaders that we try to put in place. And we've never been able to figure out how to get one. And God is going to give us one. He tells Mary here in this unknown place. God is going to give us that leader in a way that we would never make up because we could never make it happen. So understandably, Mary is a little hung up on how it is that she can actually serve as the means to the end that God describes. He says, you're going you're gonna to have a child. She's not married yet. This appears to be something that, that God doesn't mention Joseph at all. You and Joseph are going to have a child. He just says, you're going to. She's not married yet. So she gets the point that this, this is not because of Joseph, and this has never happened before. This is totally unprecedented. So she asks a, a good question. How will this be since I am a virgin? This is different from Zechariah's question. Zechariah asks, how will I know this? It's a little bit like asking, can you give me a sign? It's a little bit like saying, your word isn't quite enough. Mary asks with what I think is genuine curiosity, and it reflects the fact that the things that God most intends to give us are the things we can't imagine how to get. She doesn't ask how she can know for sure that it will happen, kind of like Zechariah did. He, he, he's a faithful man who um, is unbelieving in the moment, and he gets a gracious rebuke. Hers is a, a good question in particular because having a child under her circumstances has no precedent in the, in the past. It's never happened before, nothing like this. So it's a good question. And in a way, she asks even more than she realizes because when the angel answers her question, she answers more than the immediate question of how will I conceive without having a husband? Her question really creates an opportunity for the angel to describe the fact that what God is going to do in sending this king to rescue and to rule forever 
is God's idea and God's idea alone. It comes to the unexpected. It comes in an impossible way. And it comes on God's terms. It's God's idea. The angel explains in verses 35 through 38 how this will be. Not only how Mary will bear a child, but how it is, how it's possible that Israel will actually get the kind of permanent king that they need. A king who's qualified to rule forever on David's throne. Even establishing David's line over Israel will not be impossible with God. God often does the greatest work in the ways that we would least expect. So the angel tells her, here's what's going to happen to you. This has never happened before. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And and then he goes on to to tell her, you know what, there's a token of God's ability to do the impossible for you by doing something that's really unlikely for someone else. Your, Your relative Elizabeth, she's old. You know her situation. She's been called barren. And now, behold, verse 36, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. John, we've been told, is a forerunner for the Christ, for the king. He's going to announce the king. And by God's impossible working, John serves as a forerunner for the king even before he's born. The very fact that he's been conceived by such an unlikely couple is a token to Mary, this whole promise of the king coming through you, conceived by God's powerful working alone. John is a token to you of God's ability to do that. And he's going to. He shows you that nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary, in one sense, is the first person to receive Jesus by faith. That's what she does in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In Zechariah's interaction with the angel, the angel gets the last word. Because the last thing Zechariah does with his words is to express doubt about God's words. And so his words are taken away until such time as God has re-prepared him to use his words to acknowledge the faithfulness of God's words. Here, Mary gets the last word because she uses it to express faith in and submission to God's word. The angel doesn't have anything more to say to her because she has responded with submission to something she could never make up and something that she could never make happen. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. God often does the greatest work in the ways we would least expect. He saves in his own way. And we need him to, because we would not come up with the ideas that we need him to come up with for us. Here's the king 
the king who is going to be qualified to rule forever. And how's he going to do that? Here, Jesus is announced as the king. Where is it that Jesus is first publicly announced as the king? In the place where he qualifies himself to rule over us forever. Turn over toward the end of Luke to Luke 23, 38. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. He's qualified to rule over us by his death for us. It's not something we would make up. Not something that we can make happen. Nothing will be impossible with God. And this is what God intended to do from the very beginning. He's made this clear. This is not a new thing, but it is something that will be easy to miss even as we look at the Old Testament because we're not looking for it. Luke 24, uh, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, um, comes to his disciples on the road to Emmaus and they're saying, we're really disappointed uh, because we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now it's been three days since he was crucified. And Jesus goes on to explain to them that they haven't been seeing what's been right in front of their eyes. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, we need to be able to see that in order to receive Jesus as this unexpected, humanly impossible king who comes as a result of God's idea for us. And one of the reasons that we need that is because now God intends to do, to, to do through us the unexpected uh, to do the impossible through us in his own way. And that's what Jesus promises as well. We, we looked at this passage last week. The resurrected Jesus once again appears to his disciples in Luke 24, 45, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, not by Gabriel, not by angels. We can trust angels. You are witnesses of these things. Really? How are we going to do that? That God's plan of salvation through his son, he's really going to come to people hanging out in Nazareth that nobody knows, that don't have our own power to make this happen. How's he going to make that happen? He's going to make it happen by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. God often does the greatest work in the ways that we would least expect. So, what might it look like for us to answer this promise in, at the end of Luke in the same way that Mary does? Where we say, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me as you have said. Maybe, maybe it's in response to a life of obscurity, like Mary experienced, like sometimes we experience, a life of being unknown. 
maybe that answer needs to come as a response to spending a long season being the kind of person that nobody would expect to be a part of something great. Willing to embrace that from the Lord? Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me as you have said. Maybe it's in response to an impossible calling, having an assignment from God. Uh, maybe long term, maybe it's just in the moment with a family member, or a friend, or a coworker, an assignment that can't be accomplished unless God does a miracle. And that other people will reject unless they believe that God does miracles. Maybe we need to respond to an impossible calling with, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me as you have said. Maybe it's in response to an absolutely life-altering plan. There was no sign-up list for this. And Mary was given this assignment with no forewarning whatsoever. Um, and it was a life-altering plan. So maybe it's, maybe that response is a way of submitting to God's way of doing his work and involving me in it in a way that I would never have made up. Let it be to me according to your word. Because we know that God often does his greatest work in the ways that we would least expect. Father, we, we bring ourselves before you and we pray that in your own gracious way, and through the power of your spirit, you would be shaping us to more and more fully respond to your sending of Jesus to us and your sending of Jesus through us in the way that Mary receives Jesus. Behold, we are the servants of the Lord. Let it be to us as you have said. We ask this in Jesus' name.